want you to think just for a minute. I want you to think just for a minute. You can close your eyes or not, but however you sort of like internally think about your life. And I want you to think, what would it be like in my life if I had enough wealth? Like, what would that be like for you? Like, think about it. Like, I want you to sort of get a picture in your mind of what it would be like if you had enough wealth. How much would it take for you to be satisfied? Like, how much would that take? You don't have to shout out numbers because you'll embarrass yourself. But think about it. I want you to have like a picture in your mind. Like, what would it look like? How much would I have to make in order to be satisfied? I want to give you a couple of statistics. In 2017, how many know Charles Schwab? You know what that is? Those of you who don't know don't have a 401k or a retirement account. You should get one of those. Um, in 2017, Charles Schwab surveyed 1,000 Americans. 1,000 Americans. There's a lot more than that in America. But between the ages of 21 and 75 to find out what net worth would make them feel financially comfortable. Anyone want to guess what the average personal net worth was to feel financially comfortable? Anyone want to guess? A whole bunch of numbers all at the same time. $1.4 million to feel comfortable. Net worth of $1.4 million to feel comfortable. The same survey said in order to feel wealthy, I would have to have $2.4 million of net worth. I saw another survey that took a, a look at how differences in geography affected what it would be like to be rich, right? Because Altoona is not the same as like Pittsburgh, which is not the same as like Philly, right? So their geography tends to make a difference in what it is to feel rich. And consistently, the mark for what it meant to be rich was to make double the median income of wherever you lived. That's what the mark is consistently to be rich. If you're curious what that means for Altoona, Double of the median income in Altoona means you make $75,000 a year and you are rich. You are rich. Some of you are like, that's a lot of money. I'll never make that. Some of you are like, crap, I'm rich. I don't feel rich. Where did all my money go? Right? Like that's, that's the thought going through. Like you're, you're one of the other, right? According to the Wall Street Journal, what makes someone rich is double what they currently make. Double what they currently make. This seems to sort of a better account for the reality that, that we're all kind of aware of, right? Which is that being rich is a subjective thing, right? There's not like a, you've reached the rich line. But it's sort of a subjective thing in that uh, what's rich for you is largely dependent on what you have and or comparing with somebody else, right? You're rich in comparison to somebody else. You're also poor in comparison to somebody else, right? And this is the problem with money and possessions. Our contentment is so driven by a culture of comparison, materialism, and accumulation. And if that wasn't enough of a problem for the follower of Jesus, it creates another problem for human beings, namely the lack of margin. You see, it's you don't just earn that money without trying. I mean, most of us don't, right? 
The drive required to continue to pursue more and more money, more and more possessions, usually takes a toll on our relationship with Jesus. It takes a toll on our relationship with our spouse. It takes a toll on our relationship with our kids. As they get squeezed out of our lives to produce more, to make space to produce more. And many of us probably know this firsthand. It can be school. You don't have to be already rich, right? Like I'm striving really hard to, to get more grades, more, master, like more degrees. How many of you that are in school, honestly, are majoring in more than one thing? Nobody. One person. That's actually not what I thought it was going to be. Um, but we, mo- we all know this, right? Like at work, at church even, that we can do this in church. I've told many of you, uh, so I've talked about faith walking. You guys have heard me talk about faith walking. Side note, you too can have your own faith walking experience. You can have your life turned upside down in a really good way too. Uh, November, if you don't get the email announcements, you should sign up for them. November 1st and 2nd, there's a group going from here to Delaware City Vineyard in Ohio, north of Columbus, and uh, we'll participate in faith walking uh, together. So if you want to have your life shaken up for the better, uh, you can sign up for that. But one of the things that I've discovered as I've gone through this faith walking process is that I tend to fill my life with things that lead to accomplishment. That when you look at my schedule, I fill my schedule with things that like make me look accomplished and make me look productive. And in doing so, unconsciously, I keep people from getting close to me. So this is like self-confession time. You're like, I'm not comfortable with you talking about this, right? I keep people from getting close enough to hurt me. I've, this is something I've learned about myself, that I tend to try to keep people far enough away from me so that they can't hurt me. And I do so by filling my schedule with things that, that are like productive, right? And, and as a, a little bit of a twisted, the, the tw- most twisted part of this is that because I'm doing things that are good, that lead to accomplishment, who could ever challenge me, right? Who could ever say I'm doing something wrong? You see, culturally, what I'm doing is actually acceptable. But through faith walking, I, what I have learned is that this is not who God created me to be. That God created me to be the kind of person who's present to my wife in a way that no, she knows that she has my attention. That God has created me in such a way that I would be a father whose kids know that they have my attention and my love and my devotion. That's what the calling on my life is. That's not where I am now. But by God's grace, I'm walking this direction. But I would imagine I'm not alone. I would imagine if you pulled your phone out and you looked at your calendar, probably there's many of you that struggle with the same pull. You struggle with a discontent that drives you to be someone you don't want to be, someone God doesn't want you to be. When you look at your life and your schedule, you find that in your life, Jesus gets squeezed to the margins or squeezed out. You find that your kids and your spouse constantly get the leftovers, if any time at all. Talking to some of you. I can, uh, don't kill me yet. Wait till we get to the end. What's worse is that when you think about sharing your faith with your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving neighbors, your unbelieving coworkers, you find that your life 
really doesn't look different than theirs. That we've so bought into this idea that to be busy, to be pursuing wealth, to be pursuing accumulation, we've so bought into this that we don't look any different than our unbelieving friends and neighbors, do we? I know when I thought about popping my calendar up on the screen, the embarrassing part is I'm probably busier than a lot of unbelievers. I probably have less margin than unbelievers. Shouldn't following Jesus change every area of your life, including your discontent? Shouldn't it? We started a series a few weeks ago that really comes out of the longings of my own heart uh, for a way of life that's distinctly different and more alive than those who do not follow Jesus. That something about following Jesus ought to make us alive, right? Like, apparently the, the early church didn't need Facebook to get people to come to church. They didn't, they didn't need to keep the regular Insta posts going, right? Apparently there was something different enough about the lives of the early Christians that people just wanted it. And doesn't that sort of stir kind of an inner longing of your own heart? Don't you long for a life that looks so distinctly different and so alive that those outside of the church would go, I don't know what you have, but I want it. Don't you long for that? Isn't that sort of what you would would desire? So the first week we talked about having margins uh, uh, that involve silence and solitude to connect with the Lord. And the second week I talked about the absolute necessity of having a Sabbath, and I heard many of you tried that, I would say keep trying it. Don't, don't quit. Like, this is not like, a, well, I tried it the one week and it was good enough. Like, this is like every seven days you should have a day of rest. I mean, what church tells you that, right? Last week, Jerry talked about having good boundaries. This week, I'm going to wrap up the series by talking about having margins from contentment. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that may be familiar to some of you. It's from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul writes this letter uh, to the Philippian church uh, from prison. He's sitting in prison. What else do you do but write a letter? Uh, And and throughout the letter, like a lot of Paul's letters are like, fix this. This is wrong in your church. You're messed up. You're jacked up. I'm angry at you. Right? Like these are this Galatians, Corinthians, like all these other ones, right? This letter is like the tone. If you read it like from... Page one to, I mean, chapter four. There's only four chapters. But if you read the whole letter in one sitting, he's like pretty happy with them. He's like, you guys are doing a great job. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm just trying to encourage you. The the letter to the Philippians is like, hey, guys, I love you guys. That's how I imagine it sounded when when he's writing this. Hey, man, you guys are doing great. Yeah. Rabbit trail, I'm trying not to go on. Uh, but as he gets to the end of the letter, Paul like wants to express gratitude for a financial gift that the Philippians gave him. So he wants to say thank you to them. And so here's where we are, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 4. Here's what Paul writes. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He gave me money. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. It's not that you stopped being concerned. You just didn't have a time to give me money. And then he says, 
I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this who, through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. You gave me money. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you. You guys are the only ones who gave me money. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gift. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul's like, you guys are so generous. Thank you so much. But what I want to focus on today is this little sort of side comment. Did you catch that it was just sort of this three-verse side comment that he's like, just want you to know I didn't actually need it. Did you catch that? There's this sort of like little like this, this momentary detour in verses 11 to 13. Many of you are likely familiar with this section of scripture or at least verse 13. But probably many of us haven't actually read these verses within the context of the whole book of Philippians. Let's read these three verses again. I am not saying this because I'm in need. I didn't actually need it. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, many of us have heard verse 13 or have used verse 13 in the exact opposite way, right? We'd sort of like swipe it out of context, and we just sort of, this is my life verse, man. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, you got the world champion. I'm trying to win the world championships, and we're, we're, we're underdogs, and at halftime, you know, the, 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 the center comes in. He's like, listen, we can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We're going to win the game. Or some version of that. That's what I imagine that's like in an NBA locker room. Pete, you could tell me about like that. Or, 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 you know, maybe we've said it, we're facing a big challenge at work or at school, right? Like, man, I don't know if I can do this test. I don't know if I can finish this project. And then you go, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, so I'm going to press on, and I'm going to do it, right? Or, or, or maybe, you know, you're interviewing for, for a, a new job, and you're like, I just don't feel qualified, but hallelujah, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm going to get that job. Right? Or maybe some of us parents, parents, all summer long, kids are at home, they're like, I'm going to kill these kids. <laughs> and you text your friends, ladies, I know how this works, you text your friends, you're like, help me, because this is about to go ugly. And your friend texts back, you can do all things <laughs> through Christ who gives you strength, and you're like, you're right, I don't have to kill my kids. <laughs> right? There's some circumstance happening in your life, and you remember that I'm going to stand on the promise of verse 13. I'm going to claim this is my life verse. Here's the problem. That's not what Paul's talking about. 
There's nothing quite like pulling a verse out of the Bible and just using it willy-nilly, right? Nobody in here has ever done that, though, <laughs> right? You've never done that. Paul says, I was grateful to receive your gift, but what you need to know is that my gratitude is not because I was in need. Paul's saying that regardless of any circumstances, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, I have learned to be content. I don't need anything to make me content. I have all I need. Here's the point of this whole message. You ready? Here's the point. You can write this down. For the, for the mature follower of Jesus, contentment is not dependent on circumstances. For the mature follower of Jesus, contentment is not dependent on circumstances. It's not, content, it's not contentment if you're only all right when all your classes are going well. That's not contentment. It's not contentment if you're only all right when your kids are acting right. Kids are all right, so I'm all right. That's not contentment. It's not contentment when you're only all right when your relationships are going well. It's not contentment when you're only all right if you have a good job, the bills are paid, and there's money in the bank. Right? It's not contentment if only your party's politicians in office. That's not contentment. I remember hearing conversations uh, in, around my household in uh, 1992 older than some of you sitting here. <laughs> I just realized that that, okay. <laughs> Bill Clinton got elected, and in my household, the world had ended. But I would imagine we would have said we were a content family. That's not contentment, friends. Contentment is not only being all right when everything's going your way. In Paul's day, the first century Greeks believed in the virtue of contentment, but it had a vastly different meaning. For the Greeks, meaning uh, being content meant you were self-sufficient, that you had so much money, so much power, so much wealth, that you didn't need anyone else and no circumstance could touch you because you were self-sufficient. That I had manipulated my situation so well and I had covered every base that I could be content because I got it all covered. And yet Paul says it's possible to be content in situations where you're not self-sufficient, where you don't have any wealth and you don't have any status, any material goods. Trust me, being in prison is probably not the place where you would say I have enough to take care of all my situations. There's a secret to contentment while you are completely dependent on other people. For the mature follower of Jesus, contentment is possible when classes are a mess, the kids are going crazy, my friends hate me, my spouse is mad at me, my job is failing, the bills are stacking up, and the White House just got captured by the other guy. There's a secret to contentment. It's possible because for the mature follower of Jesus, contentment is not based on circumstances. Now, I use the word mature on purpose because I want you to notice that Paul says he has learned the secret. He has learned the secret. Contentment's not natural. Ask any baby. They 
freak out shortly after they're born. I want something. I need something. Have a poo-poo. I don't say that. It's not natural. It does not come natural. Right? There's a growth process that happens in learning the secret of contentment. Contentment is not natural. Now, many teachings on this passage end right here. Right? If you've heard a sermon on being content, here's how it usually ends. Christians should be content. It's a lifelong process. Go out and be content, people. Cue the final song in the service. You know what's happening when I was re reading this, preparing for this? I was like, what is the secret? <laughs> he didn't say. You can't just say, I know the secret, and you don't. That's not nice. How do I leave here on a different trajectory? Like, if we're not naturally content people, how do we live here sort of like altered so that we would be on the path to learning the secret to contentment? How do we do that? The way you grow in learning the secret to contentment is the way you grow in anything else. Do you know how you grow in humility? Your pride gets the snot beat out of it. That's how you grow in being humble. The most humble people I know are the people who have had their pride just pounded. And what's left at the end? This nice, rounded-off, humble person. Right? How do you grow in patience? Had this conversation with somebody else this week. How do you grow in patience? You just find yourself in situations that drive you crazy all the time. And you're forced to suffer through it. And here's the deal. If you pray for these things, God is faithful. He loves you very, very much. And he will give you opportunities. It's reps, people. It's reps. You face resistance. And when you see that God meets you in the midst of it, you are changed. How do you grow in contentment? What's the secret? It's to be in situations where you don't have enough. Where you as a person are not enough. And you're terrified. And God meets you. I learned a whole new level of contentment when we moved here and didn't have enough money to make our bills. And month in and month out, the bills were paid. On paper, the math would not add up. For, I don't know, what was it, eight months we lived here. If you took her income and my income and you added them together and you took out all the bills, what you had was a negative number. And yet every month, my bills were paid. I had a car that was dying. I was given a car that's not dying. The way you learn contentment is to be in situations where you're tempted to like freak out and run, right? Like this is where I should be discontent and yet God meets me and you're changed from the inside out. 
as God desires to grow you in contentment, it comes by your needs to, the, the need that you have to accumulate, accomplish, and earn taking a royal beating. That's how it works. Knocks all the rough edges off, little by little. But there are ways that you can cooperate. You see, that will take a lifetime. I mean, the whole thing takes a lifetime. But there are ways that you can cooperate with God by intentionally putting yourself in position to be shaped. Historically, these have been called spiritual disciplines. You put yourself intentionally in a position where God will meet you and shape you. There's a book on spiritual disciplines that I really appreciate. It's called Celebration of Disciplines by Richard Foster. I was going to put a picture up. I didn't do that. I was going to bring it. It's at my house. Um, but it's, it's a book by Richard Foster. And in chapter 6, uh, he, he talks about this uh, dealing with this issue of contentment by undergoing a practice he calls simplicity. There's a good word. Simplicity. In this chapter, he says, the issue of contentment really boils down to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Where we started four weeks ago, we end today. This is the way it works. What Jesus is saying is that if you orient your life first and primarily around seeking the kingdom and the righteousness of God, then what you will find is that money and possessions and status will be ordered rightly in your heart. Seek money, possessions, and status, and there's usually not a lot of room left for the kingdom and righteousness. Seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of God, and you won't have to worry about what happens with things. You know why? Because God will tell you to give something away that you were clinging to. If you seek the kingdom, you'll go, look at all this money I've amassed, and God will go, give it to them. No, now. Like, now, give it to them. Look at this nice car I got. Yeah, give it away. God will tell you to give stuff away that you sort of form unhealthy attachments to. You won't have to worry about what happens to the thing. As he concludes the chapter, uh, Foster gives 10 really good guidelines for beginning to implement this practice of simplicity in your life. I'm going to just sort of go through them real, kind of real quick. They are, number one, buy things for their usefulness Rather, rather than their status. Anybody buy a car because it's like super cool and everybody like will love it? Been there? Yeah, me too. So buy things for usefulness rather than status. Number two, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. How do you know if it's producing an addiction in you? I got to a place where I, books were created. If you've been in my office, you'll know what I mean where books were becoming an addiction for me, where c I was just compulsively like, like, you guys know that you can make a wish list on Amazon? Did you know that the price has changed? For some of you, I was like, huh, you just learned something new. Okay, the prices on Amazon changed. So I created this wish list of all the books that I wanted. And I would bet, I'd never counted, it probably would be sick. At least 10 times a day, I would go through that list and go, have any of the prices gone down? And when they would go down to the place where I'm like, yes, buy it. And then the box comes, and now they, they stop sending you boxes. Boxes felt a lot more important. But 
when the box comes and you open it and you're like, new book. And I'm like, what am I going to do with it? Well, I'm in the middle of reading two and I have a shelf that I just put it right here. There, it looks pretty on the shelf. Right? Where did it come from? I had sort of created this unhealthy attachment to books. So reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. I realized that. I was like, I can't. I got to get away from this for a while. It's not healthy. Anything can be that way. Shopping can be that way. Guys, stop shopping. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Number three, move on from there. Develop a habit of giving things away. Develop a habit of giving things away. You know, the people that that impress me the most are the people who recognize in themselves that they've put something really high, and they go, you know what, I can't keep this. Here, you take it. I give it away. Develop a habit of giving things away. If that's hard for you, There's part of you that goes, man, I'll die a little if I give these things away. It's probably good for you to give it away. Number four, refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern modern gadgetry. I had to read that line about five times. (laughs) Like, what? I think what he's saying is, we used to have these little phones that you open like this, and they were good for making phone calls, right? And that's it. And then we got these things that they don't really make phone calls all that well, but they do a whole lot of other (laughs) stuff, right? (laughs) Any of you ever break a screen on one of these things? Any of you ever, like, find, like, something wrong with it? I can't do anything with it. I need to go get it fixed. I'm without a phone. Put that message on Facebook. You got to get a hold of me. Send me a message here. Some of you have made that message, right? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. What he's saying is modern gadgetry tends to increase stress and increase the things that you have to do to upkeep it. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. How easy is that for you? If playing with it is cool, if owning it would be better, right? What about going to the library? That would probably be a really good thing for me. Right? Number six, develop a deeper appreciation for the creation. (coughs) Go outside. You don't have to own stuff to entertain you. Isn't the creation amazing? Like if you ever go, like we, uh, June, we went to the park uh, for one of the uh, outreach events. We kind of hung out in the park and did this, uh, like, just sort of quiet time in the park. And I was like, man, if you actually like just like hang out in nature, it's like, it's like pretty cool. I mean, minus the ants, but other than that. Uh, Number seven, look with a healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. If you can't afford it, you can't afford it. Right? Moving on. Obey Jesus' instructions about plain and honest speech. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. Probably not a good thing to buy cheap t-shirts and sweatshops. Right? 
shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, the real problem is that we tend to live our lives in the kingdom of our culture. And there never really seems to be time or space to seek the kingdom of God after that. Imagine how hard it was, for, remember how hard it was for you to start even trying to take a Sabbath, right? And the fact is, if we here at the Vineyard and we as followers of Jesus want to be who God has created us to be, we've got to get this straight. We'll never be able to be people who can transform the spaces we inhabit until we get our priorities aligned. And we'll always find ourselves figuring out what the cultural norms are and acclimating will always look like chameleons. Or, or to use a, a different illustration, we'll go through life always being thermometers, but never thermostats. A thermometer takes the temperature and acclimates. A thermostat sets the temperature of a place. I think God has called us to be thermostats, that we walk into the room and the culture acclimates to us. Not because we're angry or loud, but because we live a life that looks so radically different and alive. People can't help but want what we have. Contentment must not be dependent on circumstance. 